turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning, which is the first ten verses of Psalm 34. So we'll be reading now Psalm 34, verses 1 through 10. We sang these earlier, but I will now read to you in the New King James translation, verses 1 through 10 of Psalm 34. And whether we sing it or read it, it is God's Word. We have the privilege now of of attending with reverence to the reading of God's Word for the purpose of its exposition. So here we now read Psalm 34 again, verses 1 through 10. I'll read the caption. It says, A Psalm of David, when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him, and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack anything good. This ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading and its exposition this morning. About a year and a half ago, for one of our afternoon services on a third Lord's Day of the month, I did a, a brief meditation on Psalm 34. Uh, today I'll repeat some of, of what I said at that time, but uh, I'm going to focus more on David's conclusion to the part of the psalm that we just read, this first section of Psalm 34, and his conclusion to that is really in verses 8 through 10. David's desire is that others would experience the salvation from the Lord that he has received. Now, experience is not the determiner of truth, but it is important. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, Peter writes about an experience, saying, For we, talking about him and the apostles, particularly James and John, we'll see that's the, the, the group that's... The, witnessed what he's talking about here. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. That was Peter's experience. And it was a profound experience. 
he and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, had gone up on a mountain, most likely Mount Hermon, with Jesus. And Jesus was transfigured before them. His glorious God shone forth from him, so much so that it, it, as it were, bleached his clothes whiter than you could actually bleach them with any kind of earthly treatment. His face was changed, and they heard the voice of God the Father come out of a cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And their testimony about that experience was true. And so Peter there is saying, we didn't just make things up, we saw these things. And we're relaying to you the things that we saw and learned from Jesus. But Peter goes on to say that there's actually something better than having an experience like that. He says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, or uh, better translated, perhaps made more sure which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So Peter says we have something that's more sure than that and you would do well to pay attention to it. So what is the prophetic word made more sure than hearing God's voice from heaven? Well, Peter explains it's scripture. He writes, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Again, that's probably better translated as no prophecy of Scripture is of human origin. Rather, Peter says, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You and I don't have the kind of infallible proofs for our experiences that the apostles had. But we have the infallibly inspired word of God. We have the scriptures. Apart from scripture, we can't even know what our spiritual experiences even mean. Or if they're authentic. After all, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan can appear as an angel of light. And in Galatians 1, he tells us always to weigh such experiences against the gospel, saying even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached, let him be accursed. He uses the word there, anathema. You, you don't have anything to do with that. Nevertheless, there is an experiential aspect to understanding the truth of the gospel and of its implications. Doctrine is of highest importance. For example, getting Jesus' identity right is paramount to our salvation. But the gospel is not mere doctrine. It's not merely intellectual. When the Lord, by His grace, changes the human heart, that grace can, from that point on, be experienced. So David calls people to taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a call here to experience the same salvation that David has experienced. Experience the Lord's goodness. This is the general gospel call that we as the church have been commissioned to give to the world, to call the world, experience the same salvation that we have experienced Psalm 34 is a psalm of praise in which David calls people to experience 
that same salvation he's experienced. In the New King James translation, the caption reads, A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. That refers to an historical event recorded in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21. David was in the Philistine city of Gath. If that sounds familiar to you, that's where Goliath was from. If you've heard of Goliath of Gath, right? It was uh, within the territory that the Lord had given to Judah. And it, David was seeking refuge at that time from King Saul. This was a difficult time for David. It was when uh, he had been serving King Saul faithfully, but Saul turned on him and tried to kill him. And so David fled, and he eventually made his way to the city of Gath. But the Philistines of Gath remembered the Israelite song that had been popularly sung at that time. One of the reasons, by the way, that that Saul was jealous of David and began to turn against him was this popular song that said that Saul had killed his thousands, referring to the Philistines, thousands of Philistines, and David had killed tens of thousands of Philistines. Another problematic factor might have been that David on his way there had stopped off uh, the tabernacle where Goliath's sword had been kept, sort of as a trophy that the Lord had brought this salvation when David had killed Goliath. And David took Goliath's sword with him. So he probably had that sword with him when he went to Gath. So uh, it might have seemed that He was boasting before the Philistines of Gath of his victory over their great champion. So seeing he was in danger, David cleverly took advantage of a Philistine superstition. The Philistines had originated from people who populated the island of Crete. They were culturally related to the Greeks, though they were descended from the same common ancestor according to Genesis as the Egyptians. But they, they had a cultural relation with the Greeks. And in that worldview, madmen were thought to have been touched by the gods for good or ill. And so they believed that to interfere with a, a crazy person, right, to interfere with or harm such a person, was really to start monkeying around with the plan or judgment of some god or other. And you didn't want to get in the way of that. right? So... Uh, insane people were usually just left alone. So David pretended to be insane, knowing the Philistines would probably leave him alone. 1 Samuel 21.13 says, So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the door of, or the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. So he's like drooling. Right? He's trying to make himself... Look like he's, he's just gone completely crazy here. Achish, the king of Gath, ordered his servants to leave David alone and let him go. Now you'll notice that the caption of Psalm 34 says that the king in question was called Abimelech. But First uh, Samuel 21 says it's Achish. However, Abimelech was actually a common title for Philistine kings. Uh, think of the account in Genesis of 
Abraham's interaction with the king of Gerar, that was a Philistine city. And then decades later, Isaac. And in both cases, the men were called Abimelech, the kings of Gerar, and they were not the same man. Abimelech literally means my father is or was king, so it's probably a claim to hereditary title. Or it might even be a claim to be the son of a, a god, like Molech, uh, a, a king god, right? It's a claim to legitimacy or authority. The Abimelech of Gath in David's day was named Achish. When David escaped with his life, he recognized God's providential working in his preservation. And you'll notice in this psalm, he doesn't say, praise God because I'm so smart. Right? He's not like that Pharisee in Jesus' parable who says, I thank you, God, that I'm such a great guy, and not like that sinner over there. No, he simply focuses his praise on the Lord. In verse 1 and 2, he declares he will praise the Lord continually. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Notice the humble are glad to hear this message. Those who do not put their confidence in themselves, but in God. Hear this message and are glad. They rejoice to hear of such gracious workings of the Lord as he did for David. So David calls others to praise Yahweh's name with him. Praise the Lord with me. Verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Join me in praising God for what he has done. That he is such a God that would do this. David did not boast again in his own cleverness, but in God who is sovereign over all these events. This could have backfired on David. It was, it was a gamble, humanly speaking. He took the chance and the Lord blessed that opportunity that David took. Why does he thus praise the Lord? He gives his reasons in verses 4 through 7. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he heard me. That implies that he prayed to the Lord as he was coming up with his plan. Maybe it was indeed through prayer that he came up with the plan. We don't know exactly the details there. But he sought the Lord. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. David knew he was in danger. His fear of his earthly life was legitimate. His fear for himself in that regard was legitimate. He sought the Lord's help, and the Lord helped. The Lord helped him out of a potentially deadly situation. Thus, he has further assurance that the servants of the Lord have no need to be ashamed. They look to God with joyful countenances. Verse 5, they looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. Think of that expression of looking to the Lord and being radiant. Uh, calls back to memory Moses. 
going into the tent of meeting with the Lord, or going up on the mountain, and when he would commune with the Lord, he would come out, and the Lord's glory would be shining from his face, as it were. And that seems to be recalled then also in Acts chapter 7, when when Stephen is stoned. And when Stephen is stoned to death, what happens to him? He, his face, we're told, was like that of an angel, which seems to be recalling that sense of the glory of the Lord, sort of reflecting forth from him. David recounts in verse 6, This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Now you think of Stephen... We might think, well, he wasn't saved out of his troubles, though he was radiant, right? So he looked to the Lord. But of course, the Lord doesn't promise that he'll save us out of every earthly trouble, but the worst thing that can happen to us is death. And as I mentioned earlier, the sting of death is taken away from us now if we're in Christ. The Lord will eventually deliver us all out of all of our troubles. But David's recounting here, here was an earthly trouble, and the Lord did deliver me out of it. Then he sings of a more general principle of Yahweh's preservation of his covenant people in verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. This is most likely a reference to the angel of Yahweh, uh, who is Yahweh. So there's the sense of what the uh, intertestamental period rabbis called the two powers in heaven. That they knew at least there were two persons in the Godhead. The, The notion of the multiplicity of the person that person in the Godhead is not something that was just simply invented by the New Testament writers. It was seen in the Old Testament and people were gleaning this as they say, even though the revelation is more clear in the New Testament scriptures. And people were noticing, well, there's at least two persons in the Godhead because there's Yahweh who sends and there's Yahweh who sent. There's this angel of the Lord who is the Lord. The one who spoke with Abraham, who wrestled with Jacob, who was with Israel in the wilderness, who was sent by the Lord and was the presence of the Lord in their midst. For various reasons that I won't recount now, that we've noted before, that we know this is the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ. God the Son, protecting His people and delivering them. Of course, such deliverance is ultimately to come in his deliverance of his people when he took on human nature and died for their sins and rose again. That's the ultimate deliverance, and David is looking forward to that. The angel of the Lord encamps around his people and delivers them. Because of the deliverance that David received from the Lord, he issues the gospel call then for others to experience that same deliverance. Verse 8, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Notice the, the integral connection of tasting and trusting there. Those are placed in parallel to one another here. Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good comes along with trusting him. Trust in the Lord, David says. Have faith in Him, and you will taste the blessedness of salvation. 
you will see that the Lord is indeed good. The Lord is not a whimsical God who may help you or may not, who cares, right? Like often the gods of the myths of the pagans are are like. He's good. And when you taste of His grace, you see that He is good. Those with saving faith ultimately lack nothing good because of that grace. Yes, as Jesus said, we receive persecutions in this world, and David acknowledges that in this very psalm. This is not the doctrine of your best life now, right? Rather, the Lord will grant that believers inherit the earth. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints, that is his holy ones, those who are made holy by him, those who are sanctified by him. There is no want for those who fear him. Indeed, the unscrupulous who seem to succeed for a time and who are pictured here poetically, I think, in David's words, as young lions, they seem to succeed for a time, but they're not going to be provided with what God gives his people. God will provide for his people ultimately. Verse 10, the young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Ambrose of Milan, the ancient church father, wrote, In Christ we possess everything. Let every soul approach him. That's what David's saying. The young lions may lack and suffer hunger, But those who seek the Lord do not lack any good thing. Yes, Jesus says we'll inherit many good things along with persecutions in this lifetime, but ultimately we inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And we lack nothing good. And even the pains and afflictions that we receive in this world, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, God turns to the good of his people so that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So God's call for you here in this psalm, in this portion of this psalm here today, is to taste the gospel. Taste the word of God. Seek him and see that he is gracious and merciful. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Like David, invite others to do so. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good if your faith is in him. Now, be like David. David saw the salvation that the Lord had given him in this earthly sense, and he couldn't help but but turn around to the whole world and say, Hey, everybody, taste and see that the Lord is good. How much greater a salvation have we received, not just from a possible death at the hands of our earthly enemies, but from eternal death. So let's turn to the world and say, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Be eager to show that experience of salvation with others. Share it. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the Lord actually invites his people physically to taste with their tongues. But that's pointing to a spiritual tasting. The sacrament, as we know, is only efficacious for those who have faith. So God also calls you to taste in your spirits the reality of his goodness.
through this very sacrament which points to the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you that you have sought us, that we might now seek you. Let us do so, that our faith may be built up as we taste and see that you are a good God, experiencing your grace and saving power in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.